You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. All right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. It is good for us to, to gather and worship, and let me be another, another person to surely welcome you. Um, if you have been with us uh, studying Judges, we'll be continuing that this morning, of course, and if you're joining us as a first-time visitor or if you're watching online um, as a first-time visitor, we're glad uh, that we are gathered today to learn and be instructed from God's Word, um, and I trust and have been praying that that's what will happen today uh, for us. Uh, we've been studying through the book of Judges, as, as Matt said, and uh, seeing how despite incredible, securing incredible victories over the Canaanites under Joshua, uh, we're seeing how the people of God for generations are unwilling and unable to serve only God himself, the one true God who established a covenant with them uh, under their ancestor Abraham, saved them out of slavery in Egypt, and brought them into the promised land. Instead of keeping the commands of God and worshiping God only, the book of Judges recounts the history of rebellion against the law of God in favor of Canaan, the land of Canaan, and the people within Canaan and their cultures. The book of Judges is telling the long and steady decline of the people of God into almost being indistinguishable from Canaan itself. This is what's been called the Canaanization of Israel. But nevertheless, the book of Judges is also the evidence and display of God's continued mercy toward his people and his preservation of the people themselves. And so we've seen in our series thus far that as it says in chapter 2.16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And it's important for us to remember that the source of the judges' authority is Yahweh. It's God. He raised them up. And it's also important to recognize that the purposes of the judges themselves is not to be judicial in the sense that we think of it today. They're not raised up by God simply to settle internal disputes of the people. Rather, their purpose is to deliver the people from the hand of their oppressors. The word judges in the original language is understood to mean deliverer or savior. And this is profoundly important for us to remember so that we don't fall into error in thinking that these judges themselves are perfect models of faith for, that we should completely mirror. Or that these accounts that we'll read of even today, for example, takes place in a vacuum, as if it's a cut and paste story that has an independent beginning, middle, and end with easy to apply lessons for Christians. Neither of these two things is true. Rather, the narrative of the judges and of the people of God are of flesh and blood men and women made in the image of God, like you and I, corrupted by sin and entangled in the temptations of the world, like you and I, and themselves complicated products of their natures, their nurtures, and their choices. And as the stories are connected to one another, we're seeing this, uh, this is a study of successive generations, and as we've seen from weeks past, and we would expect even to see today, it's not going well. Right? The people are in rebellion against God, and sin is the fruit of that. And even for every short or relatively long number of years in which there appears to be peace, there follows another reference to the people, quote, again doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We read that refrain multiple times in Judges. 
This is the true result suggested by the canonization of Israel that I mentioned a moment ago. Each narrative is seemingly getting more and more depraved. And we should be wise as the people of God to wrestle with the resulting despair of that. The sin of the people is destroying them and it's exhausting God. And with that, we turn to our scripture for today. We'll be reading in Judges 11 and 12, and I apologize, I did not look to see what page number that is in the Bibles in front of you. So turn to Judges 11 and 12, and we're actually going to jump around a little bit. I'll let you know when we're doing that. I think it's on the screen as well. And we're actually going to start by rereading the final verses from last week's study uh, in Judges chapter 10. So move back to Judges chapter 10, starting in verse 9. And open your eyes and ears to this book that we love, the Word of God. Starting in Judges chapter 10, verse 9. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and the sons, sorry, against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites? And from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served their gods. Therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Verse 17, Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped at Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mitzvah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now chapter 11. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was, Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives me over to them, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people, made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzvah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonites and said, to the king of the Ammonites, and said, What do you have against me? that you have come to me to fight against my land. And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel on coming up from Egypt took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok to the Jordan. Now therefore restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, thus says Jephthah, 
Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. And jump with me now down to verse 27. We're going to skip over that back and forth discourse between Jephthah and the king. Verse 27. I therefore, this is Jephthah's summary statement of his uh, of what we, we skipped over. I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mitzvah of Gilead, and from Mitzvah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from the Aurora to the neighborhood of Minnith, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came home, came to his home at Mitzvah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father and he did with her according to the vow that he had made. She had never known a man and had become custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. We're now in chapter 12, but skip with me down to verse 7, and there's going to read some selected verses from chapter 12. Starting verse 7, Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Verse 8, and after him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. Verse 11, after him, Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel, and he judged Israel 10 years. Verse 13, after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Paranathianite, judged Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Please bow your heads as I pray for us. God, we sung a moment ago that you, our Father, are all that we need. And it is true. God, give us wisdom by the work of your spirit to discern your word and your truth this morning that we would in turn glorify you. Amen. In Judges 11 and 12, and albeit I know we we did not read all of 12, we see a focus on the continued war between the tribes and people of Israel and their enemies. And we see the rising up of another deliverer who will save the people. And we see the continued sin of the people and the continued degradation of morality as a whole. And we also see the faithfulness of God. Indeed, that is what the story is again all about. Now, there's a lot for us to consider this morning. I'm going to work through a lot of content even. And I want to do so in three parts. 
Uh, first, by looking at a people separated from God. Second, by looking at a leader separated from God. And third, by looking at a God not separated from his people. So first, a people separated from God. Why did we start reading in chapter 10, verse 9? Because in the final 10 verses of chapter 10, we read of a frightening reality. God goes silent from the people. Or truly, the people of God do not hear his voice. The people of Israel cry out to God for deliverance, but God has grown weary of their duplicity and weary of their suffering. When they call out for a second time, they add, do whatever seems good to you. Did you catch that difference? And God does. In a way that we can easily miss, God is about to do what is good for the people. He gives them over to their moral decay. And that may be stunning, but that is part of what unfolds. And as the people put away their idols and again serve the Lord, even as God is not heard from for almost the entirety of the next two chapters, the people are left to live and operate in the result of their sin. There is a distance between them and God. This is why I said a moment ago that these narratives are not vacuums, right? They're rather continuations of the greater narrative of rebellion against God and what has been described in other parts of Judges as the whoring after other gods and nations. As a result of their continuous rebellion, they're now not left with a great situation. And their options are neither plentiful nor really any good. The leaders of Gilead, on the front lines of the upcoming battle, search throughout their land for a volunteer leader, but they find none in their own people. And finding no volunteers among their own people, they have to go recruit a leader. And reflective of the state of both their bankrupt morality and their bankrupt honor, they have to turn to an illegitimate son, the son of a Gilead elder, whose name was Gilead, and a prostitute. Now, the introduction of Jephthah will soon be overshadowed by later decisions that he, he makes. We can run the risk of forgetting how he even arrived on the scene because we can remember him for a later tragic vow that he makes. But we cannot miss that he is exactly who the people of Israel deserve as their leader. He himself is truly the embodiment of separation from God. His name means he, fill in the blank, has opened, which is most likely the result of his prostitute mother's gratitude given to a pagan god for opening her womb to bear a child. The fill in the blank is whatever name she would have credited for the birth of this child. Now her profession and Jephthah's father's action in visiting a prostitute, the condemning character of his brothers and throwing him out of the people, and his own personal character that we read and know all about, all point to his mother being of Canaanite descent and not a child of the covenant people. And truly, as the people of Israel have whored after other gods, so has the man Gilead whored after a prostitute who conceived an illegitimate child. And as a result, the child Jephthah has no home, no family, and no future. He is the embodiment of where the people of God themselves are heading in their sin, having no home, no family, and no future. But Jephthah is really good at the things that he does. He's described as a mighty warrior. And that echoes Gideon being called a mighty man of valor back in chapter 6, although that line to Gideon was delivered by the angel of the Lord, who was expressing his favor toward Gideon. Here, the leaders of, Jephth of Gilead go to Jephthah because of his reputation, even as a lawless man, 
And there is no time for righteousness or favor with the Lord to be considered. The people living in the consequences of their long-standing sin and rebellion have only pragmatism on their mind. They need a tested warrior now to lead them. And he is the only option in a bankrupt people. The people of God, in desperation as a result of their abandonment elect of God, elect Jephthah to be their judge, truly their deliverer, their savior. And to this point, notice the comparisons and contrasts between the appeals we read in chapter 10, where Israel is appealing to God, and the appeals to Jephthah that we read in chapter 11. Daniel Block, in his commentary on Judges, lays it out clearly. In chapter 10, we read of the Ammonites oppressing the people. In chapter 11, we're reminded that the Ammonites are oppressing the people. In chapter 10, Israel appeals to Yahweh for deliverance. In chapter 11, Gilead appeals to Jephthah for deliverance. In chapter 10, Yahweh responds sarcastically, go serve the gods you've chosen, right? And in chapter 11, Jephthah responds sarcastically, why are you coming to me now? Didn't you throw me out? In chapter 10, Israel repeats that appeal to God and says, do to us whatever seems good to you. In chapter 11, Gilead, having been now turned down by Jephthah, repeats their appeal to him again. And in chapter 10, God refuses to be used by his people. He goes silent from them. But in chapter 11, what does Jephthah do? He seizes this opportunity, right? The people ask that God save them, but what they get is Jephthah. And not only do they get Jephthah, they had to go all in to get Jephthah. In 1018, the people are looking for a head over the inhabitants of Gilead when they're looking internally. And here, head means more of what is suggested, right? Commander-in-chief over the entire land. They're looking within their people for a new leader of their entire people. In 11.6, though, when they go to Jephthah, that word changes. They ask him to be their leader. In the original language, that word is different. It means chief or military leader. That's what they want of Jephthah. But when he turns them down, they have to go back all in. They then ask him to again be the head. They use that other word, which is more of be our president, be this nation's ruler. That's what they need Jephthah now, and he gets that. The people should have had God as their full ruler, But because of their rebellion against him and separation from him, what they functionally get is Jephthah instead. And now we expect that as God raises up judges, that the judges themselves are insufficient. That's been the study the entire time. Every judge we've seen is insufficient for completely restoring the people into righteous standing and holy worship before God himself. This is true of every human deliverer. And it's a foreshadow to the work of Christ. But both the people and Jephthah in this narrative are a stern warning to the consequence of long-standing rebellion and sin against God. Tim Keller in his commentary on Judges says, We are seeing that God's people must learn that their treatment of God's judge is the way in which they are in fact treating God himself, for better or worse. God's leaders are types who each point to his greatest judge, the Lord Jesus. The way people treat Jesus is the way they are, in fact, treating God. Now, the people back then, they didn't know of Jesus the way that we do now, but they knew of God, and they didn't want his rule. That was seen generation after generation. And because of separating from the rule of God, they became bound to the rule of Jephthah. And what is God's response to all this? What's God's response as Jephthah is established? In their separation from God, they hear nothing from God. He is still out of the picture even as Jephthah appeals to him in chapter 11, verse 9, and as the people in Jephthah make their agreement before the Lord, 
at mitzvah in 1111. God, though, is at best a silent witness to this. We don't hear from him. The people don't hear the voice of God. Mitzvah is also an unknown location of a sacred shrine. That's not true. It's most likely used now because, can't we see, this is where the army is camped. This is where Jephthah can be established, and he can immediately take control of all these people. They can see the affirmation of the elders of Jephthah and go under his command. At the end of chapter 10, God refuses to be used, and he's not heard from again. The people, desperate in their attempt to establish a savior and unable to hear the voice of God, do not hesitate to continue acting as though God actually approves. This is a people separated from God, desperate for leadership, having no peace, scrounging and begging for protection, and truly giving God only lip service along the way. And a question for us is, where are we not accepting the rule of Christ, as Keller described before? Where are we paying God only lip service in how we recognize the rule of Jesus in our lives? Or if you're with us today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, where are you unwilling to recognize the rule of Christ in your life because of your separation from God in sin or unbelief? Let none of us live comfortably in sin or become separated from God because of our own desires. If so, we will be, as James 1 says, tempted, lured, and enticed by these desires, desires that give birth to sin and sin that will bring forth death. And with death now in front of us, and I know I picked that verse, it's opportunistic in some ways, we're going to come back to it as well though, but with death in front of us as the result of sin, let's turn to Jephthah. We've already talked about him a little bit, but let's narrow in more on him as we move to our second point, a leader separated from God. Now, as I said a moment ago, every human deliverer is insufficient, and everyone is a foreshadow of Christ. But like the people who have spiraled downward into moral decay and rebellion against God, Jephthah is a leader who is as double-minded as we've seen thus far in the book. There is no prize for being worst, Right? But Jephthah is not like Gideon, who didn't want to be king, even though he acted like king. No, Jephthah wanted to be the leader, and he negotiated to be the leader. And he's not like Abimelech, who is at least a legitimate son of Gideon, and who, as Scripture tells us, hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him, even as Abimelech then falls deeper and deeper into sin. No, Jephthah is the worthless fellow. Right? He is the outcast. He's the embodiment of the canonization that I described before. And he is, as I said, as double-minded a man as we've seen. And just as James 1 provides an accurate assessment of the people's desires giving birth to sin, so James 1 also includes insight into the character of a man like Jephthah. In James 1, verses 5 through 8, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person, the one who doubts, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. A double-minded man lives in a constant state of compromise, always trying to appease two allegiances, most usually an allegiance to God and allegiance to self and self-interest. 
And in being double-minded, he's always insecure about each side. And that's true of Jephthah. And we know this is true of Jephthah, that he's in a constant state of compromise because of what he says. Jesus, speaking Luke 6, says that a tree is known by its fruit and that the good person out of the good treasure of their heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure, evil treasure of their heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We see this even as Jephthah, whenever he speaks, actually demonstrates some competence in what, he, what he's saying for his purposes. He has competence in his ability to draw worthless men under his command. Right? It's not easy to organize and maintain rule over outcasts and criminals, but Jephthah does that. Jeph, uh, he has competence, too, in his cunning negotiations that we've seen with the people of Gilead, whereas he was put in charge of the army seemingly overnight. Right? They only wanted a military leader, but he's cunning. He negotiated to be the president, to be the king over everybody. With no family, no inheritance, and no people, he's made his life by the power of his sword as a warrior and the power of his mouth as one who can negotiate. But true to his nature, we've seen him appeal to God in an opportunistic fashion only. He appeals, he knows when to appeal to God to accomplish his own will. There's a compromise between his allegiance to God and his allegiance to self-preservation, position, and power. In his negotiation with the Ammonites too, Jephthah also demonstrates remarkable competence in his speech with a compromise. Remember, a moment ago, he's the illegitimate son of a prostitute with no people or honor, but now he has the command of the army, and he addresses his messages directly to the king. Did you catch that? He sent messages to the king, and he asks, what do you have against me? Why are you in my land? Right? The king must have thought that quite pretentious of Jephthah. Who's this guy talking directly to me? And it's his land that I'm in? I'm offending him? Right? But that's the position that Jephthah takes. And he does this with a compromise in his speech. In verse 24, we skipped over this part. He makes a couple arguments against the king as to why he's trying to get the land back. And in verse 24, he's making a theological argument. And he appeals to the Ammonites' submission to their god, Chemosh, saying that since Chemosh did not give the land to the Ammonites many years earlier, they should accept that fate, right? Here's the compromise that Jephthah made. There is no god, Chemosh. In appealing to the Ammonites' worship of Chemosh, we see pragmatism rule once again and not true confidence in the rule of Yahweh. Why is he trying to negotiate? Because he's pursuing peace. But there can be no peace between God and idols. And it's worth mentioning that Jephthah was also wrong in assigning the Ammonites' worship to Chemosh. It was actually Milcom. Chemosh was the god of the Moabites, another people in that area. And at best, it's a mistake by Jephthah, right? But as Daniel Block describes in his commentary on Judges, Jephthah was not unlearned about the pagan cultures around him. He grew up in them. Rather, at worst, it's an intentional mistake meant to antagonize the king. Jephthah perhaps couldn't keep himself from having a one-up moment. The sarcasm of a smug and self-assured outlaw in a newfound position of power. Regardless, in appealing to the existence or authority of any other deity, even as he appeals to Yahweh, Jephthah undermines his own faithfulness and his full allegiance to God alone. 
But now his worst compromise comes. In a story that in many ways is unparalleled in Scripture, something truly hellish occurs. And this is how we remember Jephthah. We even, I think as Christians, if you're like me, want to take this story and put it somewhere like on the shelf and not touch it. It's like this story that we're not supposed to know much about or even talk much about because it doesn't fit in the narrative of what we think faithfulness looks like. And that's the point. It's not faithfulness, right? This is not unlike how Matt spoke of the time two weeks ago of Abimelech when he was judge. Remember, these stories are not unrelated. We've arrived at Jephthah as the result of working first through the generation of Abimelech. And whatever picture of hell on earth was seen during that time is now being doubled down on under the leadership of Jephthah. Jephthah is an embodiment of Israel's rebellion against God. He's the leader they deserve because he truly represents their state of unfaithfulness, double-minded, full of compromise. And what does that bring? Tragic results. With the Ammonite king refusing peace, Jephthah passes through Gilead, Manasseh, and the mitzvah, most surely sounding the battle cry to collect as many men as he could to fortify his army. And he's actually really good at that. We've seen that already. But then he makes a vow to the Lord. He says, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up as a burnt offering. And we've already seen what happens. God, through Jephthah, delivers the people over the Ammonites. Praise God for that. Jephthah then returns home and sees his only child, a daughter, joyfully coming to meet him, joyfully coming to meet her father, who she's so proud of. What has happened? Why has this happened? First, what has happened? The most straightforward and honest interpretation of the text makes it clear that Jephthah really sacrificed his daughter. A human sacrifice made to God. A young girl murdered and burned. Analysis of the text refutes any claim that Jephthah intended perhaps an animal, right? An animal would have greeted him out of his house. As it was not common for animals to greet victorious war heroes, Rather, it was commonplace in these ancient cultures for people, especially women, to do so, much like Miriam did to celebrate God's victory at the Red Sea, and much like we'll see later in the Old Testament, multiple women dancing at the arrival of David coming back from defeating the Philistines. And Jephthah also speaks of the one who will meet me from his household, making it clear that he expected a person to come out. A human sacrifice is being contemplated by Jephthah. He just doesn't expect it to be his daughter. And that's why he's grieved, because he expected a human to come out. But then he sees it's his daughter, and that makes him upset. How would he have responded if it wasn't his daughter? He would have been joyful over that. The author also implicitly denounces the evil of this decision by using just five words in the original language to state with horrid candor he did to her as he vowed. It took just five words in the original language to say that. Even the author just wants to say quickly, but clearly, he did this. So why and how did this happen? Why did Jephthah even make such a vow? Because in his sin... And coupled with intense pressure, he, he resorts to his own self-reliance. That's all he has. It's his best weapon. He compromises his faith and uses what he believes 
are his words to be the best thing he has. See, too, this is the first time that Jephthah speaks directly to God, not just of God or perhaps even toward God, but really to God. But it is not in complete surrender of faith. It's to negotiate. And let us not be deceived otherwise. He does not offer just a pious expression or say a rash vow. No, he acts out of sin. He intends to do this. It's a shrewd and deliberate attempt to merit the favor of God. And he was no doubt influenced by the Ammonites and Moabites and other pagan cultures that were around him that he grew up within. They were prone to human sacrifice. They engaged in it frequently to their false gods. And that's influenced him. Tim Keller explains of Jephthah, he makes the fundamental error of thinking that salvation is an arrangement that can be negotiated by offering God incentive rather than casting ourselves utterly on his mercy. He fails to see that salvation is a gift. True religion understands that our relationship with God is based on his generosity and free grace. We bring nothing to the table. We have nothing to offer God that can make him love us more than he already does. Keller puts that brilliantly. That is a message for us, not just about Jephthah. That's about us. For Jephthah, though, this unfaithful vow is a result of his self-reliance on his own words. And as a result, he's a living example of how self-reliance even leads to further and further separation from God. Consider this. Jephthah negotiated his own terms with Gilead and was successful. He became the leader. He tries to negotiate with the Ammonites and is unsuccessful. He's turned down. He then negotiates with God and receives no answer. He does not hear from God. His leadership is a real-time metaphor unfolding in front of the people for how moving away from God is moving and, and relying on self is moving from stability to destruction. This double-mindedness, this compromise between self-reliance and reliance on God is a deep sin that bears no fruit. Rather, it's as James 1 says, sin that brings forth death. People of God, let us examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith as Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians. Let us see that in our flesh, we are prone to add our merit to the work of Christ as if the love of God in Christ is not sufficient already. If you're like me, you do this all the time. I do this all the time. I want to bargain with God in my mind. I want to find more satisfaction in life, in work, in marriage, in parenting, in seeking the praise of others. I think that I have something to offer God that will give him a greater amount of faithfulness and blessing toward me, as if that could be accomplished. God's faithfulness and blessing for me is complete. I'm focused on the wrong things. And praise be to God, I've learned the folly of this, and I'm going to continue to learn it my whole life. My satisfaction should only be in the forgiveness of God. I need not, and I truly cannot, like Jephthah could not, add anything to the love of God that he has for us, or, as we know, to the finished work of Christ on our behalf. This forgiveness given to us and the spirit given to us as a seal of our salvation gives us freedom from trying to negotiate with God. We need only respond in faith. And with that firmly in front of us, let us turn to see again the deliverance that God makes 
for his people in this story, because that, that matters, that it happened in this story too. Right? Our third point, a God not separated from his people. And he's so much not separated from his people that we have to go back into some of the things we've already talked about to see that. And that's a great thing. Right? To start, we must consider God's nearness to Jephthah. After all, by the sovereignty of God, Jephthah is raised up as a deliverer of the people. Earlier I mentioned how God would do what the people asked for in 10.15. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. And God does that. He does that by raising up Jephthah to save the people from the Ammonites. Now much of what's happened under Jephthah we wouldn't see as good. We wouldn't call it good. And clearly not all of it is what the Lord God wanted for his people in obedience and righteousness. But God had the spirit of the Lord go upon Jephthah just as it did with Othniel, just as it did with Gideon and others before him. God ceases to be absent. He ceases to be unheard. And he provides a spirit-led leader who delivered his people, whether anyone knew it or not, whether anyone actually then went to credit God with this or not. He does. He saves his people. And Jephthah is a severely flawed person, even demonstrating his own withdrawal from God. But God has not completely separated himself from Jephthah. And he's given the spirit of God to accomplish the work of God. Let that be humbling for us to recognize that in the battle against the flesh, those of us with the spirit of God living within us, we're prone to be just as self-reliant and compromising as Jephthah. I said this a moment ago. But God, in being near to us, has not chosen us because we're faithful. We're separated from God. We're unfaithful. In being near to us, He's chosen an unfaithful people to receive faith and to live faithfully in response. Tim Keller puts it this way. The story of Jephthah reminds us that God can write straight with crooked pencils. We must beware of mistaking God's work through us for evidence that God has finished his work in us. Just because we are good at speakers, good speakers, leaders, or teachers, and just because God is using us does not mean our hearts are pleasing to him. And true to, true to my own heart being ple- uh, prone to deceit, when I first prepared that and writing the quote, Keller says that our hearts are, uh, um, just because God is using us does not mean our hearts are pleasing to him. I insert the word always. Our hearts are not always pleasing to him. I wrote that uh, always pleasing to him. My heart's not always pleasing to God. What am I doing there? I'm actually suggesting that sometimes it is. It's not. Apart from the work of God, my heart is never pleasing before the Lord. That's why we have a new heart made possible with the Spirit. In Jeremiah 17, it says, The heart before the Spirit, right, is deceitful above all things. And as we battle against the flesh that we still live within, we are still prone to deceit. But it's the spirit within us, not ourselves. It's the spirit within us that enables us to cry out, Abba, Father, as it says in Galatians. We see that Jephthah was separated from God and oftentimes trusted his own heart. But God was not separated from him. And he blessed him and he used him. But more than just seeing Jephthah as a sinner that is used well by God, unless we let that soften our opposition to sin, as if we should think, yeah, that's right, my sin isn't all that bad, God can still use me. Let us see with open eyes that Jephthah's depraved leadership 
cries out for a greater Savior that is required. We must do something with this peace. Where do we find this peace? It's a Savior that God sends, Jesus Christ. Jephthah, the man whose strength was his sword and his mouth, in the end, put his sword to his child because of his foolish and evil speech. The text also implies that he was grievous more so over his own despair than that of his daughter. He did not repent of his vow. He did not exchange himself for the place of his daughter to save her life. He did not, as Mosaic law allowed, pay 30 shekels to remove his dedication of her to the Lord as a sacrifice. Truly, just 30 shekels would have allowed her, him to reclaim his daughter's life. Although he probably didn't know this because of his pagan life beforehand. He did not know the voice of God. He did not know the law of God. And it suggested that those around him didn't know it either. Because who would let someone go through with this if there was a way out? It reflects the separation from God and his word. He followed through on this vow because he wanted the favor of God and he thought he could merit. It did not merit the favor of God. It was faithlessness. It was an abuse of power and a perversion of fatherhood and full of treacherous irony. And I'll get to the irony in just a moment, but if any of us are sitting here listening going, Steve, that's obvious. It's so wrong. We can just put that on the shelf of, we'll never do that. That's what we want to do. But look around us. This is a story of people separated from God. This is not a story. This is not a faithful decision. And those of us who want to, and by the power of the Spirit, make faithful decisions, let us see that in our own heart, we're prone to sin. And let us see around us what's happening in the culture when people do not have faith in God and repent of their sin and turn to him and to follow his laws and command. Is it, is it that stunning that this happened? What happens in our world right now when we see this, the hatred and divide that exists among people? When we see unborn lives killed in the wombs of their mothers? And there's so much to say about that. But I've taken a lot of time today, and I'm going to take a little bit more. I'm not going to take time to go into that. But let us not put this on a shelf as if it could never be happening in our world. It does. But see also the tragic irony of this. The man who tried to manipulate God so as to secure a name for himself and a future for his lineage receives neither. Instead, Jephthah's sacrifice makes his name synonymous with depravity. And in killing his only child, a virgin daughter nonetheless, who will now never bear a child, he literally destroyed and ended not just her, but also himself. He has no descendants. That's what sin does. Sin can never be wielded for faithfulness. It always destroys. Jephthah's words brought death to himself and his child. But what about God? And what about Jesus? He, Jesus, the Word of God, the Word incarnate, as we read about in John 1, destroys the power of sin and death. And, John, and, and Jesus declares in the Gospel of John, because I live, you also shall live. Jesus is a name that saves. And he's a name that brings a future of eternal life secured. 
God is not separate from his people, leaving us to rely on deliverers like Jephthah or ourselves. No, God draws close to Jephthah to have him save his covenant people, and God draws close to us in the person of Jesus, who is the complete savior that Jephthah could never be. And God's kingdom, much like Jephthah wanted but couldn't have, God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. That is the lesson for us, and it should bring out of us feelings of praise and worship, and it should also bring out of us a feeling of desperation. Indeed, we should feel desperate for God as we consider the battle of the spirit versus the flesh, and as we read, and we'll continue to read about what happens afterwards in the rest of Judges. We skipped over a bunch of this in Judges 12, but Jephthah is at the center of an internal conflict within the nation of Israel. And he tries to negotiate again. And a fence grows on both sides. And tens of thousands of people die. Sin destroys once again. And we should be desperate for those people, for the people of Israel, to turn to God, repent, and worship him alone, and live in peace. And we get some of that in the last verses. I read some selected ones, right? We read about Ibzan and Elon and Abdon. Does that appease our need for peace? At least going like, well, it seemed good enough in their time that we just got their name and not the whole story. It must have been okay. Does that appease our need for peace? In one way, sure it does, right? It reminds us that these long narratives like that of Jephthah, which are filled with deep depravity, are not indicative, praise God, of every moment of political and cultural reality of God's people. Rather, there were periods of time and places where peace and prosperity were achieved. But in another way, the reading of Judges, the reading of the continued canonization of the people also leaves us anxious for what comes next, right? The story of Jephthah just ends and we're left going, oh my goodness, what's going to happen in the next chapter now? The Spirit, through the author of Judges, is leading us to feel that urgency. He's training us to keep our guard because the people continue to give themselves into sin. And we need to be on that guard. Why? Because we're prone to give ourselves continuously to sin. But praise be to God, he is not separated from his people. And he is always far more interested in preserving his people than the people are in preserving themselves. That was true under the old covenant, and it's true under the new covenant. It was true for the nation of Israel, and it's true for you, and it's true for me. And it's ultimately proved true in the person and work of Christ. So people of God, let us not surrender our trust in God or our faith in God or our knowledge of God's word. And let us not compromise our faith to appease self-interest or the demand of the world to conform to the world itself. No, instead, let us have faith in the faithfulness of God. Let us believe his promises are sufficient. We need not add anything to them. And let us have confidence in our salvation, the result of a God who preserves his people and their life through the life and death and resurrection of Christ. Amen? Amen. Bow your heads as I pray for us. God, we need you to change our hearts, and to fill us with faith. We have nothing to offer you that would merit your favor. You have chosen us as your people, an unfaithful people, 
to draw near to and to give faith to. God, help us to be instructed by your word through the spirit to see how we are prone to sin and to see the tragic results of rebellion against you. God, also give us praise and worship and humility before you and to you that we would trust in your faithfulness to us, that we would trust in the work of Christ, that we would stand and sing as a result of the love you have for us. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.